worst of human nature. Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard The Killer, legendary band from Chicago, featuring my brother, Luke, on vocals, and our guest tonight, Shane Merrill, my longtime friend Remus, and many others. This record came out in 2004 on Organized Crime Records. The track, The Pills, was featured on Better Judged, by 12 than carried by 6 which is still iconically one of the coolest records to come out of the mid 2000s 
and going off of the excitement of the return in August, I knew we were going to have to do a show with my brother Shane. And I hope you check out this band. And for those who are able, please travel to the show. This is going to be a wild weekend. I leave tomorrow at 5 a.m. to go to work. I leave work at 11 to drive to Boston to say goodbye to a friend, Brendan McGuire, also known as Stu. Thank God the Bane Reach the Sky and Boston gang pulled together an amazing show at House of Blues called Friend with Sue, which features H2O, Bouncing Souls, and Sick of It All. I'm sure there'll be some surprises in store. Uh, Stu was losing his battle with pancreatic cancer. And they told everybody that he should spend time with quality of life, meaning that he was at the end of his time. And so they pulled this show together and we bought tickets, planned to go no matter what. And the Mayball show ended. We're at the diner. We're talking about it. And... And half an hour later, I'm reading the internet as Mike's driving us home. And I find that Brendan has passed. One of the things that will always stick with me is that he was friends with every single kind of hardcore punk person. And he has friends in so many different areas. It's absolutely fucking fantastic. From the punks, the tough guys... Everybody loved him, and how could you not? He played in Regis Guy, played in Bane. He's been around in hardcore for a long time. If uh, you saw any of Sonny and Todd Pollock's stuff on social media, from his daughter on stage with him in 2011, it was so touching, I put it in the This Is Hardcore book. And looking at that video, it's just unbelievable and so rare to see such a young kid on stage with her father, completely ignorant of the fact that he's got to play these songs because she just wants his attention. And I, it's for all the little things that people complain about with photography and videography and shows, that moment's going to live forever because they were there to capture it. And it's just such a simple thing, you know? She's not even really cognizant that He's in a band and there's literally a thousand people plus sitting in front of him waiting for him to play. She's just pulling at his pants and wants his attention. And it's like the sweetest thing. And, um, yeah, man, it's hard. Hardcore, depending on where you are at in your life, whether it's in the beginning and you're so psyched or it's just stuff that you've been doing for the last decades, it really is a thing that we all have in common. It's more common ground than sometimes we realize. And I am, as of right now, three days away from being 41 and have been, I don't know if you want to call it addicted, excited, involved, whatever whatever term you want to use for hardcore for most of my life at this point. Finding it when I was not even 14 years old. Um, 
it's changed everything for me. And I'm thankful to have met people like Brendan and have friends from all over. And with the beginning of shows happening, I feel like we need to remember that not every show is the best, but it might be the last time you run into a friend. That was the case with a show in Philly and H2O. I didn't go to it. My best friend called me, and uh, that night he took his life. These shows are our portal to our family or our surrogate family, and they're important. And I do believe that the loss of a few of my friends is directly related to the disconnection and the, you know, that quarantine really pushed us into an uncomfortable zone of being pulled away from everything we love. And uh, I'm glad shows are back. And uh, it's bittersweet to drive up to Boston for this, but Stu is an incredible man, husband, father, and his memory will live on. And it's absolutely fantastic that his friends were putting this together. I'm sad that this just becomes the way that we all will share in the grief, but other hand, it is great that because of the efforts to have this show as a way of goodbye, it becomes a great way to have all of us together. We have a lot of shows coming up and I know it's a weird fucking segue to go from that to this, but make sure you go to phillyhcshows.com. If you're listening to this very early, we haven't gone on sale yet, but Earth Crisis, Snapcase and Stripe at Underground Arts on October 9th goes on sale at 10 a.m. Year of the Knife record release party with Mind Force Queensway, Age of Apocalypse, All Due Respect, Raw Life at Underground Arts is absolutely selling incredibly well. And we're at the 500 ticket plus mark, which after the Madball show, which did better numbers, we put it inside so we can have more people. It's amazing to see hardcore being back and shows being so well supported. Make sure you go to the Philly Barbecue 2.5 and now I'm even more excited to see Bob Wilson's new project now that I got the inside track and heard the tracks from the band off the tracks I'm so excited to be around people again and I think it's made me a little bit less crazy and less neurotic just in the last couple weeks although the extra emails, the insane amount of time I've been on the phone after a year of just having more time to myself. It's 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 hard to pace, but I'm happy it's back. Also, be sure to check out the show we're talking about. And if you can get out to Chicago, August 6th or August 7th, amazing Bill. Shane's one of the best promoters I know. The Cobra Lounge is dope. The show outside is going to be fucking sick. I'm really fucking excited, and actually I'll be there Saturday, August 7th, but I keep rambling, so I'm going to keep it simple. 
I've been really busy with life. I'm taking down the Patreon so I can really full focus. Sorry for those who were supporting, but I can't half-ass this, and this is the smartest thing for me to do. All right. I'm a little shot mentally, emotionally, tired from work, tired of the heat, tired of losing people, tired of arguing about stupid things about shows just so that way we can all together and be happy. And um, I love you all. I have no problem at 41 years old saying that I love hardcore. It changed my life. People that I met across all the different places and all the different times have made me a better person. Stu McGuire was one of them. And it's the small things that I'm always going to remember. And it's the small things that keep me involved in hardcore. And that's all I got to say about it. Shane Merrill is a promoter who doesn't get the kind of credit that I think he deserves. And if you're from the Midwest or you're doing any kind of shows and you're an agent or you're a band, you remember him or you know him or you know him to be a good man. What he did in his projects, whether it was just the small shows at Arlington Heights or later on as he moved forward, uh, you know, a lot of that became the blueprint what would be This Is Hardcore. And with this show coming up and the killer return, I wanted to have him on the show. And not just because we've been friends for over 23 years and not just because I look to him as a paragon of how a hardcore person can also make his way in real professional music, but just that he still has the fan side of it, not like the, hey, can you sign my autograph? But he still loves this shit. There's a lot of professionals in this game that don't love it. They just do it because that's how they chase their money. And uh, he doesn't chase the money. He chases the love. He chases the show. He chases the excitement. And uh, that's that's so in sync with what I'm about. And it's a perfect timing with the killer shows coming up to have him on the show. His story is fucking fantastic. I think we should do an entire episode. We just tell funny stories because that was my favorite part of this episode. And again, sorry I'm a little shot. This is a lot. Not just Stu passing, but just the energy of the heat and shows being back. And I'm, I'm not at my high point, and I'm sorry. But let's fucking go. Today, I am talking to a friend of mine who exposed me and kind of unintentionally gave me the blueprint, which would later become a huge inspiration to This Is Hardcore. Shane Merrill, who I always felt kind of went unsung as the 2000s came about. There were so many great things about the Arlington heists and just the bands he was involved in. And when he reemerged, into the fest game with the rumble. I was so excited for him and on the precipice of a new announcement and the show's opening back up. I really was excited to have my friend on the show. So Shane, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, you have been referenced uh, quite a few times on the show from Damien to Chris Spear and uh, you are still well loved. And that's great to hear. Uh, I feel that people often look at what you did last in any certain, like, oh, whatever the person did last is what is always looked at. But I, I still tell, like, actually on this show with the Sax Thorne episode, we talked about the time when um, you booked 
that fucking really giant band who would blow up, but before they blew up, they were just a band playing the heist. And instead of anybody watching them, we all played CeeLo, and the dudes went really fucking, were super that, bummed and based. That might have been. Name? It might have been Avenged Sevenfold. Fucking right, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> world's largest. Like three, <laughs> three o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, nobody knew who they were. <laughs> yeah. We told that story on the Zach Thorne episode. It was like the the world's largest CeeLo game was much more important than Avenged Sevenfold. <laughs> yes, still is. <laughs> oh, right. that's great. So before we get anything else, let's go with where you grew up, what your childhood was like, the kind of music that you were exposed to early, and kind of what music you think that you picked up on that got you into metal and hardcore and everything that would come after. Hmm. Boy, that's a lot. Well, I had a pretty, I had a pretty normal suburban childhood. I was born in Springfield, Illinois, downstate Illinois and lived there. until I was about five years old. Then I started to move up towards this area. My, my dad was raised in Wisconsin. My mother was raised in Evanston on the North shore of Chicago. So, um, they met in college and I ended up slowly, but surely moving my way back up to the Chicago area. And I grew up in Arlington Heights where I did those shows that you mentioned before from about 12 years old until, until now. I still live in the same area. The place I'm doing this podcast from is like about 10 blocks from the venue we used to do all those shows at. So um, pretty, pretty normal childhood. My, my parents, my mother especially, was always super musical. Um, she was more into like... My, my dad was into some of the heavy stuff. He was into like Zeppelin and Sabbath and stuff like that. And my mom was into like Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder and a lot of the Motown stuff. And then she was into the new wave stuff like the police and the talking heads and stuff like that. So I think I got, I got some stuff from both of them. I definitely feel like uh, if I'm listening to like an oldies station or an 80s station or something like that, I definitely am much more fond of the bands that I can remember connecting to my parents listening to when I was growing up. Like there might be something else that's just as good, but if my mom and dad weren't listening to it, then it's not quite as high on the high on the list for me, I guess. But yeah, it was, sorry, go ahead. I was saying, how early, how, how early on into the, your childhood, do you think that you were cognizant of just like um, the difference between your mother's music and your father's music, because you said he was talking to like Led Zepp and like, could you tell like, oh yeah, these are like almost different worlds, or do you think because you're a child, you were just like, oh, that's mom's music and that's dad's music? Yeah, I don't, I mean, and some of the stuff they both liked, you know, like, okay. I mean, my, my mom didn't like Sabbath or Deep Purple, but she she liked Zeppelin, she liked Pink Floyd, like, she liked some of, she didn't do the at the, which was at the time the super heavy stuff, which would be Sabbath and Deep Purple. But I don't think I really knew that there was a difference at that time. I just, you know, my parents were super into it and um, definitely supported me being into music. And I mean, I think I was like, you know, saving up my dollar allowances to buy like cassette tapes at seven or eight years old. So that's, I guess, when I started to realize um, that I was like super into it, I guess, but I didn't, I didn't discover punk rock until I was like punk rock and metal and all that stuff until I was probably 12, 13, something like that. 
you mentioned Pink Floyd and yeah. much much like we didn't have that much dissimilar interest uh, as far as my parents go. They listened to a lot of metal, but it was like Ozzy, Sabbath, that kind of stuff, but also Motown and 70s music played. But I remember before I was even six or seven years old being captivated by that Pink Floyd, the wall VHS, and then getting yeah. obsessed with Pink Floyd, the wall and um, getting like dark side of the moon, the wall, and just being enthralled by just the the imagery. You were you uh, as a kid? Did you check out the wall the uh, the movie? I started out with Dark Side because my folks were into Dark Side, and they didn't they had the Dark Side vinyl. They didn't have the wall, so I listened to Dark Side a lot when I was a super little kid. And then when I was like in junior high, I went to a friend's house, and he had all these other records, including the Wall. I don't think I actually saw the movie until I was probably in high school, but. Um, I remember being surprised at the time because I had heard like another brick in the wall on the radio and I had no idea that it was the same band that was doing the stuff on dark side until I saw like the album cover for myself, you know? Yeah. No, I feel like it's a weird precursor to what would come later, but not only just the sounds, but the imagery of Pink Floyd always stuck with me and just me like, too, man. Still, and then, like I had a, like a, I mean, I'm still on a, a world war two uh world war one binge just from those first like images from that uh movie so as you move into junior high and start making friends what kind of kids were you hanging out with and like what were you guys getting into um i'm i moved i lived in a town that's about an hour and a half west of chicago kind of out in a cornfield called DeKalb. there's a college there northern illinois university i lived there for fifth sixth and seventh grade so at the end of seventh grade is when I moved to Arlington Heights, the Chicago suburbs. And um, so I had one year, it was right at the end of seventh grade. So I had like one year of junior high basically here, which was eighth grade. And at that time um, I was like, I was making that transition from uh, thinking metal was like firehouse and Cinderella and stuff like that. And like discovering Metallica, Iron Maiden, all those bands that was like that summer between seventh and eighth grade. Cause I had moved here at the end of seventh. I didn't really know anybody. So that summer I spent a lot of time riding my bike around, you know, buying cassettes and CDs at, you know, target and far more or whatever else What's uh, Camelot music, all these places, you know, that's what I did a lot. And by the end of that summer, I was into a lot heavier stuff. I think that's about the time that I started to like discover like thrash and stuff like that. And then eighth grade, I hooked up with some other kids that were into metal pretty early on. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, uh, a lot of years of hesherdom. <laughs> nah, I know. Uh, there's so much we're going to talk about about that later on, <laughs> but uh, I, I always, I always love the fact that when me and you connected, we had a lot, a lot of heavy metal to talk about, and yeah. uh, I always wondered what it had to be like to be like a, a like a true Midwesterner like headbanger, like you know, like we we were like we were because we're like straight from the hood, and it was like a weird thing to start growing our hair out. But what was it like being like a someone in the thrash and metal out in that world? I mean, we were still outcasts for sure. Um, you know, I wore a leather jacket and had a nice mullet and, 
you know, would get detentions for smoking cigarettes in the parking lot, all the stuff that the metalheads did, you know, I was guilty of all that stuff. Um, you know, it's, I think it was a pretty, pretty, uh, basic high school upbringing. Like, you know, you had the, the jocks and the preppies and all that stuff. And we were kind of, we, we did get along with the punks though. Like the, the metalheads and the punks, at least at my school were, you know, pretty much one in the same. We were, we were all pretty tight and buddies, you know? What do you, what can you recall as the first encounter with punk? Was it a kid? Was it a song? Was it a my, record? My uncles, my uncles, uh, I have, my mother is the oldest of five children and, uh, she has two younger siblings. Um, her youngest, her youngest sibling is her brother, my uncle Rob. And then one of her sisters married, uh, a guy from England named Mark and Mark and Rob were super into punk and they were showing me stuff at an early age. And they took me to see bands when I was 13, 14, 15 in high school and maybe even eighth grade, but definitely freshman and sophomore year of high school. They took me to see like the Ramones and uh, the Buzzcocks. Um, that was probably like the first, like sitting down with my uncle Mark and him showing me like Buzzcocks and the Clash and the Jam and stuff like that. And my uncle Rob making me like mixtapes at about the same age. That's That's when I first... I'd heard of punk, but that's the first time I actually spent time like listening to it and being attracted to it for sure. When you saw the Ramones, was that them playing White Zombie or was that a different tour? They were headlining. They played at the Riviera in Chicago, which is like a 2000 cap venue to 2500 maybe. And it was like, it was when that last record, Adios Amigos, came out. Um, okay. they, were, they were headlining and Frank Black was the opener. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's the only time I ever saw the Ramones. I saw the Buzzcocks a couple. Uh, well, obviously they were around until recently. I guess they still are, strangely. But, but yeah, that was the only time I was able to see the Ramones. But it was, it was pretty cool. I always think about like the iconic, um, bad kid high school stereotypes, and it is usually like the skaters, the headbangers, the punks all kind of merged together. Right, right. Now from that kind of. Uh, Alliance or Unity, was that your uh, entrance into some non-concert-like shows, or did it take longer for you to go from the world of like bigger concerts to like like small shows? Well, I mean, we were doing the idea from for, for doing shows. I started playing guitar when I was I don't know, fourteen or fifteen, and when I was a senior in high school, we had a death metal band called Scorch. And uh, we played a couple shows that were like, you know, a battle of the bands at like the gymnasium of the Catholic school. And uh, <laughs> like anything we could we could get, we played like we, we tried out for the talent show of our high school and uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're told no fucking way. You know, I think we did for the, the talent show of our high school. We we uh, auditioned with a cover of Scapegoat by Fear Factory and they were just like, no, thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> and we're moving on. But yeah, like we, I, I started playing guitar and then we started playing bands. And after Scorch, then a couple of the guys in the band started getting into Earth Crisis. And that's, and then, and then I started getting into that stuff. So that's kind of how it all happened. And it was at a, we were in Tim McGrath from Rise Against, we were in his basement. 
and his old band Baxter was playing, and we were in this wannabe Earth Crisis straight edge vegan. Some of us were vegan, some of us weren't, but it was like the vegan straight edge militia type vibe, straight edge band. And um, what was that called? It was called Fifth Circle. Excellent. And we had one demo, um, and we're in the basement, and I'm talking to this dude Jay who played bass for Tim's band at the time, and I was just like, man, I wish we could do this more often and not have to play basements all the time. And he was like, well, the Knights of Columbus, they'll let you rent it out. You could do shows there. I was like, really? He's like, well, I was like, we should get a show together and play there. I was like, but who are we going to get to run it? And he was like, you could do it. Just call them up and you could rent it out and charge cover and make your money back. And I was like, all right, that's a good idea. I think I'm going to do that. And that's kind of how it's, that's how it started. And like from that point, I loved it. I really enjoyed doing it. And I was, then like shortly thereafter, it just kind of like Jim Grimes was hitting me up and had tours. Hey, let's do this here. Let's do that here. And it just kind of grew from there. That was like early part of 1997 is when that, all that happened. So, yeah, I remember at some point we knew that you were doing shows because you guys brought dysphoria out. Yes. That was definitely within the first year yeah. of, me, of me doing stuff. And I remember and... I, that was one of the bands that I had before I started to get into hardcore. Cause I, I, I knew of hardcore, but I wasn't really a, a su- I wasn't really super into it until 97. And I remembered I had a special link to dysphoria because they were playing hardcore shows, but I knew them because I had heard them previously on a death metal comp like the year before. So that I was like, Oh fuck. Let's, I remember these guys, they were on the death metal comp, you know? So like they kind of inadvertently helped welcome me into hardcore because they were on this comp and then now they were playing these hardcore shows. So I was like, Oh, this is cool. Maybe everybody, we can all kind of m- merge together here. It was cool. You know? Well, I was like, the cool thing about them is that they kind of had a foot in each ground. Like they started in the yeah. metal thing and, uh, but at the same time, Neil, the guitar player, had American skinhead tattoo on his chest with the judge hammers and was like a guy who was always at. I never knew that. Club. <laughs> yeah, he's got it. He still has a judge hammers and American skinhead tattooed on his chest. Never knew and he that. was That's like awesome. a. Yeah. And he's like it was like an 88, 89, like, like, you know, true hardcore straight edge dude. And then wow. he went straight and then he went straight gore guts, like full ass metal. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a transition (laughs) yeah like legit but like that's why neil like he dresses like one part skinhead one part hillbilly just like big monster human but um i remember right around the same time we got connected with that i believe it was 814 compilation or and that was like all of your guys right no, no, not and it, whatever number was around. It was order. It was the one. Oh, cat oh, 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 the one from here. Eight four seven. Sorry, sorry. Eight four seven. Eight four seven. Yeah. Yep. 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 And um, Luke's, Luke's old band sustain was on there. Yep. Yeah, it was sustain. It was uh, Roundhouse. It I, there was a bunch of bands, mm-hmm. all that you guys were linked to, and from that point we were kind of like, holy fuck, because. We knew of a we knew there was Victory Records. We knew there was Chicago. You know, we we I knew about some older bands from Chicago, and so 
when these crazy assholes show up on my mom's doorstep and they're wearing like these crazy leotards and they came out to play with this warrior. I'm like, all right, this is not the Chicago <laughs> we were expecting. But um, I, I always thought that there was something cool. And I, I'm actually sad that with the modern young kids going back into the metal and the straight edge, they don't know just about some of these bands that you guys were doing back then. But let's walk through the very beginning of the heist in the regard of how, like, did someone you, because you played shows, you knew about PAs, but so are you doing the brick and brack, bring good gear together? Or were you renting gear? Like when you no, first started doing I mean, shows, how, how were you, uh, how were you manning that whole thing? When I first started doing shows, there was no sound guy. I was just like going to a local like guitar shop or a gear shop and renting a small PA and like basically plugging it in, plugging a couple of microphones into it and using it for like vocals. And that was it. Everything else was just plug in and that's it. There, nothing else was mic'd but the vocals. And it took me a few years to realize that it could sound a lot better than that if you uh, bring in an actual PA. But at that point, it was just like, yeah, a little, you know, a little thing that was the size of a guitar head. And it was, you know, eight track PA mixer. And we would just plug our microphones into that. And that was it. Did you have anybody besides the guy Tim or anybody around you that kind of be like, yo, this is what you should try to do? Like, was there anybody that gave you any kind of information on like the do's and don'ts or was it all trial and error in the very beginning? It was all trial and error. There was one guy, um, an older gentleman who has since passed away. His name was John Emerson. And at the time he was probably about 50. Um, He was an old punk dude that just loved doing shows and he would like it took about six months or so and then i found out about him and he would come and bring his gear sometimes and um do sound so i learned some stuff from him but he was like the opposite direction he was like bringing like light rigs and like way too much stuff for like a vfw hall you know so but like it was definitely trial and error yes like it, it, every every show, I learned a little bit more about what you should and shouldn't do. Now, production-wise and booking-wise, both. So, it's like early on, you were booking locally, and when you were reaching out, I imagine you were writing letters or calling people. And what was your first thoughts like beyond the obvious your friends' bands? Like, what was your thought process on bringing bands that you weren't socially connected to at first? Just cold calling, cold emailing, you know, whatever it was. I I didn't know anybody and I was just kind of reaching out like a dumb kid, like a like a dumb innocent kid just like hello, I would like to book this band. What do I do kind of thing, you know. Um and uh I think at that point when I first started doing shows, I didn't even know what a booking agent was. And a year later, I definitely knew what a booking agent was. <laughs> How did, uh, who did you link up with that gave you that? What was that? Was that uh, someone saying, Hey, you got to reach this band or. Hey. Um, I remember, I remember the first fest I ever did, even before it was called the heist was at this little place called the Odom that maybe could hold 300 people, but even that was pushing it. And it was December of 97. And I did it with, uh, Jim Grimes and another 
friend of ours named Ed Faktorovich. And we did a three day thing. And the first day was kind of more emo stuff. And then it, the, the other two days were like straight up hardcore. Um, and the first day we had like, um, it's crazy to think about because it was such a small place, but we had, we had get up kids, braid and Jimmy Eat world. And, uh, Tim from rise against band braid was also on it. And like, by the grace of God. And then the second day we had like all at war and, uh, Mushmouth and, uh, basically it got shut down halfway through and then we had to move it to fireside. But, um, that was the first fest I ever, um, was involved with. And that was also the first time I ever was involved with agents, I think, because I remember trying to get 25 to life to play. And, and, they, had, had, and they had Finberg at the time, right? And I had Finberg. So Finberg was, Finberg was the first agent I ever dealt with. And there was really nowhere to go, but up from there. Um, <laughs> In many ways. Yeah. So yeah, I remember we got the deal done. I think I paid him. I think I paid him, agreed to pay him $500. And at the time I was like, I hope this thing is okay. Cause that's a lot of money. I was like really scared about it, but then they didn't end up showing up anyway. So <laughs> I feel like people have young kids are just so fucking spoiled. And I hate to be that you kids don't know how good you have it, <laughs> but like, it's not like the old days where like the band just doesn't show up. Like what's nobody from the band going to get on Twitter or Instagram for, for 48 hours. Like there is no not showing up to a show. And, and I think that so many of our guests have talked about that, like showing up and half the bands don't show up or just that's a huge contingency and huge part of our, our time at hardcore was that, but now that's just like a, that's such a rarity. Like, Oh, you know, they couldn't make the show or something like, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's definitely, so, it's definitely more pro than it was back then for sure. I'm wondering if, uh, if you can walk me through the first time you saw like the Bay Ridge talent or any of the talent riders and like what your first thoughts were. Oh boy. The first time I saw, I don't remember if 25 life, I think, I don't know if they had a writer. I remember less. Well, it was probably a little bit more than a year after that. I remember the first, the first time I ever remember really seeing a writer that was like, what the fuck is this was the first metal show I did, which was in flames on their first U S tour. Up, hold up. Stop this at the fucking Knights of Columbus. Hall. <laughs> Walk me through how you got the in flames first U S tour. Um, Tim Bohr hit me up and uh, I was going to say it was a bore. It was bore. And uh, I put an offer in or emailed what I could pay. I guess I, at that point I didn't really know what an offer was either. So I just remember, you know, myself and my friends were into the band at the time. And I was like, holy shit, this is like, I thought it was insane. And somehow they agreed to play this Knights of Columbus hall. And then, um, you know, when the show played, well, first, the first warning that I was out of my league was the writer. I didn't know what the fuck it was. I was like, you know, freaked out about that. There was tons of stuff on it. Didn't really realize that all of it was not necessarily mandatory. And then I really knew I was out of my league when the band showed up and was like, what the fuck is this place? (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it was just a little, a little 18 inch high stage in the corner of the room. Um, not really a real PA, um, a tour manager that was extremely experienced and a veteran. And, uh, I, I appreciate him though. I'll never forget the fact that he, um, he realized early on that I was a rookie and he, he was nice to me. He called off the dogs. He was, he came in super pissed. And then when he realized that I wasn't some snake trying to get away with something, I was just a, a excited kid that was a little bit in over his head at the time. He called off the dogs. He was really nice to me. He kind of walked me through everything for the rest of the night and looked the other way at a lot of stuff that I fucked up. So it was cool. But yeah, that was the first time probably that I realized, whoa, this is uh, not what I was expecting. <laughs> so up to this point, it was like smaller things and just stuff that you were seeing and tried for. And there was still no like blueprint for you. And there was no one around to kind of glean from. You didn't, uh, there was no book your own fucking life or, you know, you're just kind of winging it right now, huh? Well, there was, I mean, I was, I, I, at that point I was starting to go to fireside and I, I, I got, once I started doing shows at nights, um, Brian Peterson and Dave Eves, the guys that ran fireside, you know, I kind of took a notice of the fact that I was doing stuff at nights and they kind of reached out to me and said, Hey, if you ever want to do stuff here. And then I did start to do some stuff there. Um, and they took me under their wing. Both of them did, uh, Dave more so than Brian, but but they both took me under their wing. And uh, um, that was, I think about that same time that in flames happened, like once we got into like 99. So I was flying pretty solo for most of 97 and 98. And then um, the, definitely the, the people at fireside helped me a lot for sure. But even then we weren't doing like, even they weren't doing like, you know, official offers and most times weren't doing guarantees. Like, Brian Peterson, the architect of Fireside, the guy that started it and ran it for 10 years, for the first 10 or maybe more than that years of his career, he refused to do guarantees. He would just say, and he was booking big bands too, but they all trusted him and they would do, they would do whatever deal he could give them, you know, cause they knew that he was going to take care of them and he always did. But eventually he had to, to acquiesce because the industry was just changing. But for most of the fireside years, I would say he was rarely giving anybody guarantees. I didn't even know what a guarantee was until that 25 to life show. That was my first time I ever heard that word as, as, a, as related to a show. Yeah, I got, I got two separate times. The first time was uh 25 to life in the first year I was doing shows. And uh, Rick said, Whatever you do, don't tell John about this, but this is how much we need. And I have, I still have the letter he wrote. And it was like, here's a quote if you want comma correct. Here's a quote if you want 25 to life. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, how cool is that? It's like this side deal. So I actually did come and correct first because I'm like, all right, that seems cheaper. We'll do that one. And I did that with Mushmouth when they had their demo. And then after that one, I was like, all right, I think I could take on the 25 to life. And yeah, that was the really small hall in our neighborhood. And that was the biggest show I did in the neighborhood. And the last show we did at that space. And I feel like I can relate heavily to 
people being around you, but no one really giving you kind of like the ups. Like Robbie here, Robbie Redcheeks here. It's not that far different than like a Jim Grimes, but like I didn't, I didn't have that connect with him, and he was already booking H two Os and VODs and shit by that time, so he wasn't really into showing me. So it was a lot of trying to figure out. And I got lucky that I saw a book your own fucking life, and I read a fuckload of fanzines and read a lot of shit about that. So I feel like as a young promoter, it had to be weird as things started shifting and bands weren't like, yeah, man, we can't wait to play, but like, Hey, not even a big band, but you know, we're going to need $150 plus gas and tolls for here. I, I don't know how it is in the Midwest, but everything from New York was at least $150 plus gas and tolls. And I'm like, yeah, well, for out tolls there, were. For out <laughs> yeah. there, tolls were way bigger than here. I mean, we have tolls yeah. here, but not, not like you guys do. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing too. What 25 was never big is here. The way they were, out out there when you were starting to do shows that was like that was like the big thing you know and that's why everybody wanted to see about here so it was it's kind of funny that you were kind of in the same boat in a way like that was one of your first big ventures <laughs> my how the yeah, times I, have changed <laughs> i know right <laughs> but like but like the thing for me and i and i feel for young promoters and i always put it out there like you don't know something now there's it's either being lazy or not taking any bit of time to look on the internet, but I always, I always encounter young promoters and sit down there and I have to like, I always ask them the things that I didn't know when like, Hey, so are you, what do you know about your math? And the kids are like, huh? You know? And, and so like, how quickly did you actually like start actually getting past? Was it before or after in flames that you had to start like actually learning offer, uh, not offer sheet, but like settle sheets and how you had to learn to like, not just guess what a band was worth, but actually like do the, like, fuck, could I actually break even? Like how quick did that come into your, your game? Um, I think it was after that, but not that long after that. I actually, uh, yeah, it was probably before I actually like knew how to make like an official offer and like, put together an expense sheet and stuff like that. That shit probably happened like a year or two after in flames. Um, Dave Eves, one of the guys that uh, helped me at fireside. He, he um, kind of, he started working at house of blues and um, then he started working at um, jam productions, which jam productions is a, um, you know, big promoter here that started in like the early seventies. They're still, they're still, um, independently owned, but they've taken a hit from live nation and everything in the past 20 years. But jam is like a big deal in Chicago. He got a job with them. And then shortly thereafter that he, he got me a temp job at jam. This was like sometime in 2001. And that's when I really started to like learn about like offers and, like more of the inner workings of, of the business when I was, when I was working for him at jam for a little while. So that, and that was, like I said, that was like 2001. So I was what, 20, 22 years old at the time. So that's, I, I think that's where I started to really like take it a little more seriously was at 22. Which is super funny because by then you had already did three or four heists. Punishment already came out and played. I think two yeah. at that time to had played two. And 
I mean, I really seriously would. might be the wrong word. I was taking it seriously before then, but I think but 22, 22 was the time, like I was going to school for it. I was going to school for music business at Columbia College's art school in Chicago. And when I got offered the job at Jam, I was like, well, I'm spending a lot of money going to this school to have the end result probably of being offered some sort of entry level position for a place like Jam. And they're offering it to me right now. So that's when I quit school and I started working for Jam. And like everything I learned at Jam, I took and used in my own shit, like outside of Jam, because the stuff I was doing for Jam was miles away from anything hardcore or metal or anything. Um, well, so before was, we, I mean, I, I want to, I really want to get into some of the, the high stuff because it'll kind of tie back into the Rumble stuff and all that first. But I, I'm actually, imp- I remember you actually telling me you were going to school, but we were in and out of the town a lot. And I, I just remember to me at that time, like Shane was one of the most squared away hardcore promoters, never gave us any bullshit. We never even said, Hey, we need this money. We just showed up. You guys took care of us. But yeah, really fucking early on. And I mean, East coast, we had one day fests that were like, they would call them like all dayers and you'd see them in big halls. You know, we also had the big Middlesex County college stuff. There was stuff like that, but I think for me, the kind of bands also was important and what you were doing with Arlington Heist, which for those, we say Arlington Heights, but the heist was what he called it. And I mean, it was a two-day show in the most American, simple Knights of Columbus you'll ever meet, but like, <laughs> fuck, fuck yeah, was Tony Erber drunk in the bar at one or two years, especially the year Integrity played? Like, oh man, he made me so mad with those fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> I was an old. He made me an. He made me an old man before before my time with those throwing the firecrackers in the middle of pit, the pit with their set and shit. Well, that's the thing. You touched on so many bands. And you brought so much crazy shit, but specifically, um, I always talk about the year, like the 2001 year, when that, God forbid, diecast, All Out War and Cold as Life all came through. Like, mm. that was like, fuck, man. You know, like, there was shows I'm glad, on the I'm East glad Coast. you know which year switch, because I can't remember, so you're helping me out. <laughs> but I do remember that year, for sure. Well, like, I feel like, out east there was clubs but there wasn't the hall that had the two-day thing and i mean you had integrity and the guys came out in weird pants and it was crazy and yeah, then the rich from st louis danzig the danzig years of integrity yeah 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 and then and then rich punched rich punched Dwid and ran out of the room yeah and tony tony accused me of setting up Dwid. And yeah. said he was gonna. He's like, you set him up. I'm like, I don't. I didn't know what the fuck was gonna. I didn't know some crazy fucker from St. Louis was gonna hit him. What the fuck? But Dwid wasn't even pissed. <laughs> Dwid Dwid got up and said, "I said, are you okay?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm fine. Usually, it's way worse." That's what he said. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was. He He took it with stride. He was like, "Whatever. I don't give a fuck." But Tony was like, Tony was screaming, "Someone call nine one one. Dwid's being assaulted." Someone call nine one one. Well, like what was cool is in midst of all these crazy like goon bands, obviously R.I.P. to Chris and Joe, but like 
you were bringing out disciple and like a hard Christian mosh bands. Like you always had an affinity for a lot of different kind of people from different areas. And I, I vaguely remember you saying either roundhouse played a war zone show or you booked a war zone show or something like this early on. Uh, both, both. Uh, I booked a war zone show in the summer of 97 at nights and roundhouse, our old band played and um, we didn't know it at the time, but I, I believe it ended up being their last show they ever played. Cause uh, Ray went back to New York and passed just a little bit after that, a couple months later. Um, that was a, we, it was a shock to hear that he was, he was no longer with us cause we didn't even know there was anything wrong with them. But um, he um, was so cool and so um, supportive and so warm to all of us. And it was just a really awesome experience. That was, and that was a crazy show too, because I think that's where maybe I, my interest in just like cramming a bunch of shit together and not caring if it doesn't really musically mix, just like letting it fly. That's kind of maybe the first show that that happened because there was like two or three different tours that needed a show that day. And, um, it ended up being, I can't remember all the lineup, but I do remember it was Warzone, and then there was a tour with, I think it was Indecision and Silent Majority that needed the same day. So they ended up playing two. Um, Tim Macrass band Baxter played. So it was like all over the fucking map. It was, but it was awesome. It was really cool, you know, like every everything was, oh, Boy Sets Fire. That was the other one. Boy Sets Fire played too. Wow. So they, yeah, so like Boisette's Fire needed the date, Indecision and Silent Majority were on tour, they needed the date, and Warzone needed the date. So I was just like, I didn't know any better. I was a dumb kid. I was like, sounds good. Put it all together. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, that's why I brought it up and to alliterate that he, at the time, you know, you just went from being a metalhead to like a straight edge kid. You're around all these vegan maniacs. All of your friends are in three or four bands. There's Baxter, there's fucking Cat Burglar. There's Roundhouse. Every band, re- every band ever had Remus in at some point. Yes, yes, <laughs> like that's true. I think Remus, Remus I think was Remus in every is, band at some point. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, later, I mean, one of your homeboys, VJ, would go on to be one of the founding members of Bleeding Through. You know, like yep. you were connect, you were connected with so many people at that time that I feel like you were exposed to the possibility of not keeping a hardcore show or just a show in general locked into a specific genre and that was definitely the case with the heist i mean the first time i saw comeback kid was because i guess you had brought figure four through so many times they had asked you to put their new band on the show and we were like wait what the fuck is this so figure four guys but they're singing (laughs) and a lot of that a lot of that is is was grimes too like in those early festivals I mean, most of those connections were gyms and, and I just kind of helped them find a venue and like over time made my own connections with those people. But Jim was the one that, that started a lot of those relationships for me, for sure. And at some, you know, he, he got tired of doing it and, you know, I didn't. So that was the difference between me and him. He was just kind of, you know, he wanted to do it once in a while and I wanted to do it all the time. So he, he he was a huge help to me, still is to this day. How did you link up with Jim? 
It was just uh, I did my first show at nights, which was an all local show, and there was you know mostly it was mostly hardcore bands like Luke's uh, Luke's Straight Edge band <laughs> Sustain played it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just laugh for uh, that one. Much love to my boy Luke. Yeah, Luke's Straight Edge band played, and uh, some other bands played, and he either was I, th- I can't remember if he was at the show or if he heard about the show. No, he was at the show because he came up to me after. And I had seen him at shows, but I had never met him. He was like the older, cool kid that I, you know, I was too shy or whatever. I was a newbie. So he came up to me and said, and introduced himself. He said he did shows. And like, he's like, did you do this? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, can you get this place whenever? I was like, yeah, I think so. He's like, well, let's do some shows. And like, he had like two or three shows right there that he needed a venue for that he hadn't been able to find a venue for yet. And one of them was like a couple weeks away and it was the first like out of town, like touring hardcore show I ever did. And it was, uh, um, brothers keeper and one King down. And that was like June of 97. And that summer of 97, we did so much shit that was like, you think back now and you're like, what the fuck? There was a, a hate breed show um, when they either right when they signed with victory or maybe right before they signed with victory, it was like them in despair that summer of 97. There was like maybe 50 people there. Yeah. Um, there was the one King down brothers keeper one. And there was a turmoil show that there was even less than 50 people at. Like it was crazy. Like, but it was so fucking awesome to like, cause I knew all those bands and I was like, super stoked i was like i didn't think i would ever have that kind of opportunity but jim was the one that brought that shit to me for sure i feel like chicago had such deep punk rock roots and obviously a strong skinhead culture and even like some like rockabilly and all this stuff that it took a little bit even with victory records and being at the center place it took a little bit for some of the midwest to gravitate towards the stuff that was getting popular out East when the style started getting a little bit more metallic. And so it kind of also makes sense that even in those tours here, you know, Hatebreed's first show in Philadelphia, I think I know almost every single person that was there. It was only about 40 people with, and it was yeah, like with 25 to white. Yeah. And um, I feel like a lot of those bands, especially at that time, it was something special in some small places, but because we live so close to New Jersey, a lot of times my first exposure to these bands was at like bigger hall churches, like church halls or like um, the college Middlesex where the show was fucking massive. And so it was kind of had the best of both worlds, but it had to be special for you to be a part of these bands in the very beginning and now to look back and go, fuck, I can't believe we did. And to think of how young you were when you were a part of these band shows, you know? Yeah, man, it, it was, it's definitely cool. Like I tell people that I did hate breed and in flames at that little VFW hall or Knights of Columbus hall, whatever. And they're, they're like, you're lying. I'm like, no, they play like my girlfriend. Now her kids are 17 and 14 and the 17 year old is into metal. And like, I drive them past, this old fucking shitty ass cream colored brick building that looks like nothing. And I'm like, you know, hate breed. Right. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, I did a show for them there. He's like, he doesn't believe me. He thinks I'm lying to him. <laughs> I'm like, no, they played in that fucking building and I did the show. 
he's like, get out of here. And then I had to find the video on YouTube and prove it to him, you know? <laughs> what do you what do you think your biggest mistake early on booking was? Hmm. Damn, that was a firework. I'm in my garage. That shit was loud. Nah, we got um, we got fireworks going off. That's why <laughs> <laughs> I was actually worried about where to record because they were going off until it started raining. <laughs> what was my biggest mistake early on booking? Gosh. Um I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't consider it mistakes to just not know what I was doing really. Like I just was kind of learning on the fly. You know, I don't, oh man, it's so fucking long ago. Um, any like blatant mistake. I, I made blatant mistakes later on. Um, but in those early days, I can't really remember anything that was like specifically like, man, I really fucked that up. I just, I kind of gave myself some slack because I was just kind of learning as I went, you know. What do you think before you got into college and started actually taking a music career seriously was your biggest um not only inspiration but like your thought process like if I go to music, I study music in school, where were your head thinking where you were trying to do that? Like what was uh, the motivation for that? It was just that Oh, I guess pretty much that I didn't want to fucking work for a living and I loved fucking music. And I knew that if I could surround myself with music, I wouldn't be working. So I was, I was obsessed with finding a way to um, make a living surrounding myself with music. But I also wanted to make sure that I was doing it fairly and doing it in a way that I could go to sleep every night and feel proud of what I did. So that doesn't happen overnight to figure out a way to check all those boxes and, you know, be able to live enough, at least paycheck to paycheck, you know, and I'm still not totally there, especially after COVID, but, but yeah, it was just a, a decision I made that like once, I think once I got um, super tight with Dave Eves from Fireside Bowl and he hooked me up with, uh, uh, with jam and everything like that. I think at that point I was, you know, 22 and I knew that I was not going to go back. I was going to figure out some way to be in this industry, even if it was in things that I didn't necessarily love doing, it was still as part of an industry that I appreciated more than any other. Um, and I just always found a way to make it happen, I guess. Were you, in touch with or aware of anybody that you would say was like a music professional that kind of said, Hey man, just go do this and it's going to help you out. Or was this just the drive? Like where was the, uh, where was the two points connecting? you are like, you know what? This school thing's really what's going to do it. Uh, well, the school thing was, wasn't what was going to do it. Like once I started working for jam, that's when I, I dropped out of school and, um, oh, okay there was a guy at jam that I was working for at the time named, named Michael Scanland. And, um, he was the one that kind of, I would say completed the circle that was started by the fireside guys and Jim Grimes. And he wasn't a punk rock dude at all, but he was a music industry veteran and, um, knew a lot and took me under his wing when I was working for jam. Um, and, um, yeah, he was the one that pretty much instilled the confidence in me that you can 
you, you know, you, you have some, some things to offer here and you are, you know, you're a smart kid and you know what you're doing. And if you want to do this for a career, you can do it. And he was probably definitely the one that um, helped convince me of that. And also offered me the first job that paid me enough that I could do it. You know, like he was the, he was the first person to offer me a job that I like was a full-time job. So in this industry. So yeah, he, I owe a lot to, to him. When you bring up, when you bring up fair, is that something that you were cognizant of early on or was that something you were taught? Um, I think early on, cause I think the first two, three, maybe even longer years, I didn't even think of making money off the shows I was doing. Um, it, it was only once I learned that I could do this for a career that I even thought about making money off the shows. And even then I still wanted to make sure, and I'm not trying to, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. I'm just saying that like, I, there's some shortcuts I could have taken over my career that would have made me more money and burned bridges. And I've, I've, I pride myself on the fact that I've always passed on those opportunities. I, I, it's just not, I'd rather struggle than do something that makes me toss and turn at night. <laughs> Yeah, I always say that I don't need the money as much as I enjoy the friendships. Absolutely. And there's so many times where the money really sours a connection between people. And so it's like, in theory, if everybody does the right thing with the job with the job of the show, everyone walks away with their fair uh, end of the stick. And I, I've been the person to say, you know what? I don't need this as much as you're acting like you need this. So it teaches me a lot about character, especially on a really good show. Yeah. And it's one of the, it's one of the downsides. One of the many downsides as a promoter is that, especially I think you and I can discern loving a band, respecting a band and hating the people in the band for whatever different business oh, reasons yeah. or, you know, and it's, it's always heartbreaking when it's like, I do the show for fucking free, but since you're a dick, dick about it now, fuck you, you know, like I don't need the money, but you know, like, and there's so many times where I try to explain to people when they're like, how come you've never booked this band? It's like, because they're fucking dickheads because even though they know everyone would like to do the show, they're difficult. And it, and it hurts me because it's like not giving your kids something they want for Christmas. You know, that's how I always take it. And so I love, hearing that you brought up early on doing it fair because something that's been coming up a lot on the internet and the Twitter world, which I know you don't really fuck with at all is a lot of talk about professional people in hardcore. And I always find the biggest voices against professionalism and hardcore come from DIY types and often DIY types who don't have the best of their own business accounting, you know? Right. And it, it's something that promoters have always dealt with is, and that's where the Tim Boars come in and that's where these different people come in. And they have to be harder is because lopsided ways to steal from the bands, hard asses had to come in and regulate because the bands weren't getting their fair share. And then I feel like well, at some point when you, I feel like at some point when you started working professionally, I feel like the agents went the other way and they just became like all too powerful to some degree. Well, you know, professional and like, I'm not saying they all do this, but 
the people that are having an issue with the term professional, it's like you got to make sure that you are aware of the fact that there's a very different professional and shady are two very different things. And they're not by any stretch of the imagination always linked to each other. And I think some people think that they are. And that's unfortunate. I mean, it, it just is. It's 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 uh, usually it's very young people that think that way. And, you know, we all are growing and learning the older we get. And hopefully that will continue. And we, the older we get, the more we learn. And it's just not the way it is. You know, there's lots of professional people that are on their game and reliable and trustworthy people. Um, and just because they've chosen to try to find a way to do what they love for their career, it's not something that they should be shamed for. Now, as you're getting all this extra exposure, and again, I always say Ernie Talbert gave me two words, access and exposure. And you had access to like the inner workings of the music business from a completely different perspective than you came from and the exposure to these people that can kind of walk you through it. How much, how much did you think that what you started with was never going to be something that you could live off of? And is that part of why you started focusing on other things to actually make your money from like the metal stuff more so? I mean, I always loved metal. So it kind of fell in my lap. Like I, I didn't really necessarily seek out metal shows like that in flame show. Like, I I can't remember. There was a hardcore band probably at – there had to be a hardcore band at some point that I had linked up with Tim Bohr. And then he followed up with that In Flames thing. And I was floored because I didn't know he booked metal bands. And I didn't know that I had any possible opportunity of booking a metal band. So, I mean, I'll be the first to say it. Like, I came up in the metal scene first, and I discovered hardcore after that. And, you know, I love them both, but I definitely didn't, I was definitely excited. Like I did, I didn't, I never made a decision. Like I got to start getting into metal if I'm going to do this because I already was into metal. Like I was, I, I, I was just so stoked that I had the, these opportunities and then it kind of grew from there, but it still took years before I even realized that, you know, I could figure out a way to do it. But yeah, obviously you've got to do more than just the stuff you fucking love if you want to uh if you want to turn it into a career and i i do not make a lot of money <laughs> but i make just enough to 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 pay my bills at least with, when there's not a pandemic that is <laughs> now and, and that's enough for me I, that's all i want yeah i feel like at some point this may line up and correct me if your timeline's a little different i remember the heist as Late into it as like 2002, 2003, and then in 2004, you went to that bigger sports arena place, right? It was an accident, though. Like, it was a, I didn't want to go there. Like, the Knights of Columbus double booked me and they had some wedding and they called me like a month before and they were like, Sorry, we accidentally booked a wedding on the same day as your show. So I had no choice. And that, Sportsplex was a place that um, was doing shows. All these kids, we called them the DuPage kids. They were from DuPage County, which which was a little west of us. And they were like much more 
emo or um, uh, youth crew type stuff. But they were they were they had this connection at this place called the Sportsplex, and so I reached out to them and was able to move it over there. But that wasn't supposed to be like that. It was just it was a larger area, but it was like an accident that that happened. I thought it was a I I had been conflating and thinking like well maybe you were working within the music I'm gonna make this bigger I think actually cooler that way the one thing I'll say is that it's a little known fact that mm-hmm. Marauder got their ass kicked in soccer by Punishment's Pee Wee League at that place <laughs> Jorge well, came running Jorge came running his mouth about playing soccer and he got smoked <laughs> by Punishment I remember um, one of my fondest memories was. Um, and keep in mind, I think the show was in maybe August, July or August, something like that. Yeah. And Saab came into the fucking sportsplex with, uh, a woman on each arm and wearing, yes. a fur, wearing a fur coat. Yes. And he comes up to me and says, is there any Halloween costume stores around here? And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, Sab, it's August. Those usually don't open until like, you know, September 30th or something like that. Like sometime in September, they're not open yet. He's like, oh, man, he was like super bummed. He, I don't know why to this day. I don't know why, but he was looking for a Halloween costume store. <laughs> I just remember Marauder playing and being so psyched. And then five songs in, Goat's like, I don't know anything else. That's it. That's all I know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they played a suit. <laughs> Super short set, but it was one of the probably the most intense time I ever saw him. It was great. I think um, when I think about the heist, I just think about the cross sections of so many different of our friends. Like whether it was the St. Louis folks, anytime you brought people down, the Winnipeg guys, you know, Detroit, you know, would come through. You definitely, I mean. Fuck, even that, that that one I was we were just talking about with the cards in the beginning of CeeLo. I mean, that yeah. was Ages of Man, Punishment, Shattered Realm. You know, that was like a gang. It's like that's like our whole squad all meeting and hanging. I mean, you did E Town one year with Disciple. Like you did all these amazing things. I always brought all always gave love to all war. I think that was something that was a kinship for oh, all. Was, they always fucking there was something about all out war in Chicago. People always lost their fucking minds. Some oh, of those other, East, some of their other East coast bands that should have been like more, more well received than they were. But on the other flip side with whenever all out war played, it was just complete fucking mayhem to this day. They haven't played a show in Chicago that wasn't completely insane, but especially the stuff in the late nineties and early two thousands. Oh, just fucking just jarring man crazy shit so before we walk into other things the overview i've always told of people is that the heist was one of these like i won't say a baby fest but it was a smaller fest that so many of my friends either their first bands or some of our first times meeting everybody was happening there and Mm -hmm. i always wanted to know if you if if you were aware that this thing that you did in Chicago brought so many of your friends together that would somehow now be still friends after 20 years. Um, I don't know if I was specifically aware of that, but I, 
I'm very yeah. happy to hear that. Like it may, it makes sense, but I never really thought about it before. It's, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. No, it's definitely like a crossroads. And I mean, I, I just, I've always had a lot of reverence and respect for the fact that you put that on. And it was just like by chance that so many different people became friends and stayed friends because of it. And I don't think that, I don't think you could calculate something like that, but I always wanted to know if you were cognizant of just how many people ran into each other across paths. I mean, shit, even your show that you did for um, Dysphoria at the, at the, what is that? Um, You just said at the Fireside Bowl. Yes. Oh, that was a when, good one. Yeah, when me and Mike Brown got arrested. You know, like me and Mike Brown, me and Mike Brown get arrested as Violent Society, who's from Philly, and and Kill Your Idols, who are on tour together, are pulling up because there was the matinee show, then the night show. So here we are at your show, getting arrested, and like Kill Your Idols and Violent Society are looking at me, going, "What the fuck is going on?" As we're against the cop cars. But that's like a that's like a centerpiece of anything involved with Shane. It's like some kind of like intersectionality between different groups of people, you know. That's really cool. Like I I always figured that you know people were people that were aware of each other and were friends with each other were crossing paths. But to to think that maybe I had a hand in you know forging some new friendships among people that's that's a really cool thing to think about. Well, I mean, think about. Joe, think about Big Chris, you know, like if there was no, if there was no heists, would there ever been the love and outpouring when, uh, when Big Joe passed, you know, like, and then everybody went to St. Louis to play those shows to give, you know, like. Oh, with Joe Wyatt. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, that's the thing. As we talk about being promoters and all this stuff there's a human element in here where, you know, punishment wasn't shit on the East coast at any given time. Cause we were kind of crazy people, but we would go out to Chicago and we had friends, half the goddamn bill were our friends. Like it was always so much fucking fun. And we were always able to mosh for all the bands. And it's like, we would go home and if we played half our friends would beat up the crowd or the shows would get shut down <laughs> Or we weren't, or we had the bad name, so we weren't really able to get what we could get done in the Midwest. And after the second time we played the heist, we were able to play so many places in the Midwest for people. Oh, well, they played, they played Arlington Heights. Like, you know, like you gave us some kind of notoriety in the sense of like, well, they're, you know, like, oh, they did good there. They can do good our show. And I just wanted to tell you that that really helped us. And I mean, you saw us beat up vans, no money, sleeping on your all of your guys' floors and just being scumbags. But wait a like, minute, wait a minute, not just beat up vans, vans that showed up with no fucking sliding door on them. <laughs> there was no sliding door. You showed up to yeah, nights. And were, I was like, what the? And you guys were like, oh, we lost the door like in Indiana somewhere or something. Like it just like, fell off the van. Yeah, you know, we yeah you know, we had to get a new door. <laughs> we had to go to a junkyard and get a new door. <laughs> That's a fucked up thing. But like that's a thing. That's how we rolled. And any and I think anywhere else in the world, I feel I don't think we would have got like people like, oh come on, man. But like just always appreciated what you did. And the thing is, is you know, if if we put all your flyers together, it's it's incredible the body of work. And yet 
in 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 touching on you know in our timeline here you start working with like legitimate true real metal bands and i mean you and i spent hours nerding out watching manowar videos after shows late at night so like I loved when you started being able to book like these big legitimate metal bands because I know that you really loved it. So when you transitioned, I mean, not that you ever gave up doing hardcore shows, but when you went hard into booking metal bands, talk a little bit about the differences as you deal as a promoter with metal shows and, and that whole thing. Well, I mean, at the beginning, there was a big difference because not a lot of hardcore bands had an agent. Very few did. And the metal bands all had agents. Um, so at the beginning, it was very different, you know, getting used to riders and deposits. And it's difficult finding a way to pay a deposit when um, in those days there wasn't a lot of advanced ticket sales. Or if there was, you didn't really have a way to get them in advance. So you'd have to front the money. And that was, that was hard for me. So that was a learning curve and the writers were a learning curve, but as time went on, you know, more and more hardcore bands were finding representation and growing and getting bigger. And the lines were blurring more and more. And, you know, at, at one point it, it became, they're all, they all have agents and it's kind of, and at that point when hardcore caught up to metal, as far as that goes, it was like very, very little difference because a lot of the, I was dealing with the same five or six agents. Um, and now half their roster was hardcore bands and half their roster was metal bands. And some of them were bands that depending on who you talk to could be considered one or the other, you know? That's an interesting thing because I had always looked at, in a different light, but it makes total sense where as hardcore bands graduated, they ended up leaving the hardcore agent for someone more serious in the metal world. So that's a cool perspective. I didn't think about it like that. Well, not only that though, but some of those hardcore agents also graduated to starting to represent metal bands as well. So that's the other thing. It's like the bands didn't necessarily leave the agents behind because in some cases the agents graduated with them and, and, and you know, expanded their rosters to include those metal bands as well. I mean, we, we had a a great conversation with Tim Moore about this, and it's it's interesting that uh, that it is so many different. He's a great example. People. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. To me, I look at him like the blueprint. Like, here's this hustling little motherfucking hardcore kid who becomes so impactful in how American modern American metal, especially in Kills Gage Gage and Lamb of God and all these bands. And also he touched on being the person who brought all them century media bands, America for the first time, you yeah. know, like when that's when that Swedish sound came, he was booking all them bands, you know, it's, it's incredible to think about a kid who was booking like killing time and vision <laughs> would one day do all this stuff. And then 10 years later, he's booking in flames. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. But then here you are in the mix you know, you go from uh, a hodgepodge, not real PA, to working in the heart of metal. You know, it's fucking, it's, it's, to me, it's awesome. It's like a graduation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different, but there's still a lot of it. It's, a lot of it's still the same. You still do it for the same reasons because you're excited about it, you know, at least for me. 
Now, do you have any difference in interaction with the band's day of from hardcore to metal or not so much? Um, no, I don't think so. There's some bands that are very personable and seek me out or are responsive and receptive when I seek them out. And there's some that aren't. And I don't think it's necessarily metal or hardcore. I think it's just kind of each band is different, you know, and, and the, the ones that don't seek me out or that are not as talkative, I don't take offense to it. You know, every, every situation is different. Um, but I think is, but I don't think there's really a, a difference. I think it depends on each individual band, you know, that, that checks out. And the reason why I say that is I think when I was younger, every band would come up and talk to you. Oh, you're the guy, blah, blah, blah. And now there are shows where I got to grab Bob Wilson. Going, Which fucking kid in the band am I paying? Who the fuck's that kid? Like, you know, like right. I booked the band. I know the music, but I don't, I don't know the fucking kids well enough sometimes. So I need like, thank God we make laminates and this is hardcore. So I can look at the fucking band name sometimes, but it's, it's a weird thing because, you know, Unearth slept at my mom's house on the floor and all these different, inter- you know, so diecasts. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you absolutely did. Fuck yeah, you did. <laughs> Holy shit, that was a crazy time. <laughs> but that's the thing is, is like everybody went through my mom's house. And, you know, n- you know, many years later, I don't even, there's times we booked bands and I get like a text or an email, dude, thanks for the show. But I don't, like, we just no hangs. It's, it's a completely different, separate scenario, you know? Yeah. And sometimes it's me too. Sometimes I'm fucking antisocial. And like, you know, I get a, I get that email from the band afterwards and that's cool too. You know, everybody's got their own thing going on. So I try not to jump to conclusions or get offended if I don't talk to somebody directly, you know? So the, there was a period, was it one more after that wreck that, that, um, that, that one we were talking about with Sob and Marauder or was that it for the rumble for a while? There was one more. There was the one in Indiana. Oh shit, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that there was the one in Indiana the next year and it was the same thing. Like believe it or not, they fucking double booked me two years in a row. <laughs> fucking Knights of Columbus. So motherfuckers. <laughs> that and that year that year the, the sportsplex said, No, you can't come back. So then um I had some buddies in Indiana. I think it was uh, our buddy Jim Farn who has filled in with filled in for the Killer on drums a couple times. He's he was from Indiana and he had a line on this uh, VFW hall in Highland, Indiana, which is right over the border, or Hammonds, Hammond, Indiana, and um, it was basically the same exact thing as Knights of Columbus. It was just in Indiana instead of northwest of Chicago in the suburban area of, of Illinois. So that was the last one for a while. Um, and then it came back as the rumble, like maybe five, six years after that, I want to say. Yeah. What was that? Uh, nine or 10. It was nine or one of the two, nine or 10. The first year was subterranean. And then we moved it to bottom lounge for a couple years. And then we stopped it again until, uh, Taylor and John, who do the rumble with me now, are the ones that just um, fucked with me hard. 
until I would agree to do it again. And I, I, I love them for it. And they're responsible for these killer shows too, because they're the ones that were talking to me about it for forever. Do the, do it some killer shows, do some killer shows. So they're, they're very uh, persuasive people. Well, let's walk through that. Um, First of all, obviously, kind of yada, 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 a big part of your thing. Um, early on, you know, I still have my roundhouse seven-inch, by the way, in case you were wondering. Thank you, Tommy Rat, for putting yeah. that out. <laughs> yeah. That alone is sick as fuck is that you're on Tommy Rat. <laughs> you're on Tommy Rat's record label. It's so <laughs> sick. <laughs> but um, you would go from roundhouse you played in something else before you guys started Cinecrosis, right? Or you were you jumped in and filled in in bands, or you went right to Cinecrosis? Uh no, Roundhouse was right to Cinecrosis, yeah. All right, yeah. So I I know Remus was playing in other bands, so it's hard to tell who was playing. There were so many bands surrounding all of your friends. I mean, Luke would get up and sing an entire set of Cat Burglar if he was out with them. Like, yes, you know, yes. like. But Remus, always- yeah, that was Remus was uh. We were me and Remus were both doing Roundhouse. Remus was doing Cat Burglar, and like Roundhouse ended about the same time Cat Burglar ended, and then that's kind of when we morphed into Cinecrosis, which, as you said, was kind of just an extension of Cat Burglar in a lot of ways too, because Remus and Luke were both involved. So, yeah, and then it kind of Cinecrosis was honestly, I mean, I think if you guys came out, if you guys released everything now. The way hardcore kids go insane for death metal, it'd be the same thing as kids being excited for the killer. It'd just be mind blowing for them to realize, like, holy fuck, what, like, you know, what the fuck is this? But you guys were on the, you guys would play, you guys would play later than so many like established bands. And the Chicago fucking sets were insane. And I remember reinforced some of the stuff that we said. Like, at that time, we would see all war. In Poughkeepsie, we would go see Disciple in Erie, Cold as Life in Detroit, God forbid in New York, Unearth up in the West Mass and Diecast in Boston. But there was something crazy about Cinecrosis in Chicago. <laughs> it really That's was, awesome. man. I mean, it was, it was, it was in par with that. Like everybody was there for that fucking moment. And then when you guys shifted to the killer, it was like, holy fuck! Like this is a different animal altogether. Well, yeah, I mean, Luke Luke deserves a lot of credit for that because anything he's involved with is insane already to begin with, and <laughs> he embraced that for sure. Uh, Cracker's favorite quote from Luke is that the first time Killer played This Is Hardcore, and Luke's like, go ahead, steal whatever you want. Take anything. Don't let anyone stop you. And Cracker was going, yes, yes. Finally, someone's saying it. Oh, man. He's had so many good lines from stage. So many over the years. It's like, but for me, you know, taking for granted the fact that, you know, at this stage, we knew each other. And I knew I knew you guys since I was 17, 18 years old. I'm touring with Punishment. I'm touring with Shattered Realm. And I'm wearing killer shirts. People all over, like, holy fuck, you know, you ever see that band? I'm like, yeah, they're fucking great. Like, there was a presence of people knowing that you guys are crazy. And, I mean, the killer actually came out. I always fuck with the kids from Incendiary because we had, it was like uh, Rise and Fall, Incendiary, the killer. And early on, Incendiary, we would bring them to Philly and no one will watch them. 
And now to think what they've become. And I remember. Uh, I remember Brandon that show. Like, yeah. And, and Brendan bringing up, like, yo, we played with the killer in Philly. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's it's an interesting thing to think years later, because that show was like 08 or 09. In the last 10 to 12 years, kids have really built up not only an expectation, but like that weird internet like congeal the like you know opinion of what the killer show would be like you know like yeah. and i and i think it is right to point that luke's an actual full-ass maniac yes he is and the <laughs> shit that he said the shit that he said the shit that he's done while on stage is just like you know it it bears weight that that's a that's a part of what the killer thing is but i mean the music itself was stand out and so i kind of wanted to know in part, what was the, what was the reason for stop? You know, was it all tied in that like the rumble? I mean, the heist stopped, the killer stopped, and then the rumble came back, and then, then I, I guess later on, like did 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 it organically tie in, or was it just coincidental that the band and the heist stopped at the same time, and then because well, the rumbles I don't back. I don't think the band and the heist stopping or the band and the fest, or whatever, stopping at the same time was was related. But at that time, when all that, well, actually, maybe it was because I know, at least for me at that time, it was a rough time for me. Um, when the band stopped, it was 2014. I think the rumble stopped around then, maybe the year after, something like, I don't know. Uh, probably around then, too, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had just, I was going through a divorce and I was not on my, on my A game. I, I really was not. I was, I was kind of floating around there in a, in a weird uh, space. And I'm sure that contributed to stuff. And I, but I think with the band, everybody kind of just felt like it was time to give it a rest. And I definitely didn't um, disagree with that. Uh, but I know when we, when we played that quote unquote last show, I made it a point to always say, at least, at least I always said, I think Luke said it was definitely going to be the last show he ever played, but I was like, you know, we'll see what happens. This is our last show for a very long time because I always felt we would play again. Um, but it just made sense at that time to kind of just chill out for a little bit. I mean, that's the growing pains of life, isn't it? And I mean, yeah. whether it's divorce, whether it's divorce or career minded things. And I think I'll tell you what, 2014 was one of the most miserable years of my existence. And I barely yeah, well, came out of it. It wasn't good for, it wasn't good for me either. My friend, that was right. I got, I got the, I got divorced and uh, well, I got told that I was being divorced in August of 2013. So yeah, the next year, year and a half were, were rough. And that's that's in part, I think a lot of our friends kind of go through these growing pains at different moments. And then we get back on the horse and we get back rolling. But I know that you never stop you never stopped. In fact, you started were you ever holding the calendar at clubs? Were you always just going to rooms and buying talent and putting them in the rooms you could? Like where did your was, career go as all this stuff going on? I was doing that until like I've been I have the calendar at Reggie's for like the past three, four years. But before that, I was always just doing my own thing because I always had a different job outside of doing hardcore and metal shows. Hardcore and metal shows were always just, you know, 
my passion and my side gig, but it was never my full on thing until I got offered the job doing the buying for Reggie's, which was 2016, 2017. So I would like for you to describe the, the, the kind of stuff that has to go on when you start buying and holding a calendar. Uh, it's not, it's not fun, especially when you have, uh, more than one person running the calendar. Um, Hmm. It's, well, I don't know if it's necessarily that it's just, it's, it's not a terrible thing, but it's crazy because especially at Reggie's, we have like three different rooms within our quote unquote complex that we can book shows in. So there's three different calendars to uh, be aware of and place holds in and stuff like that. It's just, it's, it's hairy in the, in the fact that it's just a lot of work. Um, And six months ago, none of that work was existing and now it all has come back full force. So I shouldn't complain, but it gets a little hairy sometimes. I enjoy it though. For those listening, holding a calendar isn't just, booking a show but it's actually holding the spot so the room can be filled whether it's for your show or a different promoter and it's a it's a it's a like the next step up after being a promoter holding a calendar is a different animal it's not just booking a single show or a series of shows but you're responsible in part to make sure that the room is filled and I wonder if you started approaching things from a different direction now with like a little bit more responsibility under you. In some ways. Yeah. Um, especially with outside promoters, like there would be some stuff that um, sometimes there an outside promoter would come and want to rent the room and they're doing a band that I may have done before. So I have to, I have to, Put that aside and be like this is good for the club this is what they're paying me to do is to make sure that the club is doing well so i have to be able to put that aside and say okay well it's good for the club so let's do it and at first that was hard now it's not hard anymore but at first it was like man kind of grinded my gears to like let some other promoter come in and rent the room and do a band that i had history with but at the now it's like yeah you know what it happens you gotta just let let that shit go not sweat the small stuff and you gotta keep focused when you're booking for a room on what's best for the for the long term you know now i i know people listen may not understand what he's talking about here sorry (laughs) history is a no 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 no. it's totally cool we're talking one way but i always like to explain stuff so it doesn't get over the head of someone so as promoters and in, in what we do, we build relationships. So you, you you don't expect every single band to come back to you every single time, but often in the case with hardcore, because there really is, to some degree, a ceiling limit to how big the rooms most hardcore people get. That you may grow a band, you may grow with a band from the two hundred person room to the five hundred person room, and so there's like the unsaid not law, but like respect of like, oh, well, this promoter has history with the band in this city. 
So you don't want to break that thing. So what he's saying is it's hard for him holding the calendar and he's got history with a band and someone else is bringing that show to his room. That's basically what he's breaking down. And, you know, there's other rooms in town and all over the country where they raise hell about it and don't let it happen. And then that particular venue loses the show. But then whoever is responsible for making them lose that show is not doing their job because they're paying you to make sure you put good shows in their room. So you can't let personal shit get get in the way of that, you know. At least that's the way I look at it. So I think that's a great detached way. I feel like your position being a professional and thinking about the bigger picture shows a lot of growth because that shit still bothers me from time to time. Oh, it it still it still bothers me too. It still don't 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 misunderstand me. It still bothers me, but I get over it, you know. Yeah. Now, as we were talking about kind of some of the reasons why things came and were different. Obviously, you stay busy post the breakup of the band and marriage and such, and you got really focused with Reggie. I remember you telling me you're getting ready to do the Rumble again, and I was so excited for you. Whenever someone says their band's getting back together or they're going to do something, I, I just I immediately feel so good for my friends. Like I think it's the coolest <laughs> shit ever. So, and and much like you, like they're yeah, this is hardcore is a cool thing, but my conciliary Bob Wilson, you know, um, I've had really good people like Rich Hall come in the in the camp and put a lot of time into getting bands that either aren't even something I would be thinking about or I wasn't aware of, or I don't see the value in. And I think it's really cool that you brought in younger folks from Chicago to kind of give you a uh, perspective of what the young kids feel, you know, it's important because as much as we want to believe that we're as cool in our forties as we were in our twenties, it's just not true. (laughs) Or we're cool. We're cool. Man. We're cool in a different way. We're cool in a different All way. All right, I'll accept that. Let me All rephrase right, that. that. We're cool in a different way. But we need to know what the twenty-year-olds think is cool too. And a lot of times, most of the time, I do agree with them. And there's even sometimes where they'll show me a new band, and I'll be like, I already know about them, so fuck you. Yeah. And that makes me feel good. Doesn't happen every time, but sometimes. <laughs> I feel as if. I feel as if. Hardcore has had so many waves since the beginning of the story. Just in your story. Like, think about all the people that have come through, whether it's the fads, the bands, you know, and then these things re- resurge. And you're like, wait, oh, you guys are back into this already? You know, like. It's crazy. This and, uh, the cycles, man. I mean, now people are like fucking frothing at the mouth to go see Limp Biscuit. It's, it's it's such a, it's crazy I, that, that I won't even I won't even acknowledge I I almost feel like it's a it's a I almost feel like it's a trolling scenario, and I also do not buy into anything that's written on the internet. Like I I I will if you saw pictures of me in seventh eighth ninth grade, long hair. I seen I seen every metal band, I seen every bad metal band, I seen every goth band, I seen so much shit, but as like a hardcore kid in my heart later on, not that I eschew and despise that music, but like I would never I mean also in Limp Bizkit came out later on, like during the punishment era. So 
I wasn't even. I would never even fucking. Yeah, they were. I'm not even aware. They were stealing risks for punishment. Yeah, they're stealing <laughs> fucking risks. Like my the minute we started touring, my entire pop culture information goes to zero because we were constantly on the road. Yeah, and I'd be like, oh wait, was that like, you know, was that this time? Oh yeah, I was on the tour. I never, I never paid attention to anything else besides <laughs> what we were doing. But I, I find that in the youth, there's also a weird way that they kind of conflate or you know amalgamate two point like two ideas into one thing and you're like i don't know if this goes together but somehow they make it work and it's actually fantastic to see a young kid's perspective on shit from our time or shit from not not too far away from our time yeah no it is it is very cool and it's it's crazy to me there's all these kids that want to see the killer that weren't around when we were a band and that's that's kind of mind-blowing too in a, in, a, in a smaller scale but yeah it's it is it is cool and that's you know as we get older we have to find different ways to look at things to make them seem cool to us <laughs> well, like especially with the killer you know god bless the boys in harm's way they really have held Chicago up in a lot of ways. James specifically probably could pick up the entire city of Chicago if he wanted to. He really could. But um, there's always something cool when a young kid finds about like the band from their city and they want to rep it hard. So I could see that as these shows are upcoming that, you know, obviously the kids like the MH boys who were just out here this past weekend – you know, they they revere you guys and they look up to you guys. And and they're the best kids, you, man. I love those guys. I feel as if it couldn't be a better time for some band like The Killer to pop back up because people know them out here. I mean, it's insane, insane what the band, like what people assume or think, you know. I mean, uh, I, I just have to wonder – how you feel walking into playing a show nowadays. Oh man, I'm just excited. I'm really I'm I'm just excited to do it. Like we've been like we've been practicing and I was just telling one of my buddies that I think we've already practiced more for this show than we ever practiced for any show we've ever played before. <laughs> because it used to be like we'd oh we're gonna do a five day weekend out east or whatever okay let's get together the night before run through each song one time and then we're good but like like we're all (laughs) we're all old and like we want it to actually sound good so we've been practicing and i'm just i'm excited to play like there's people in my life now that were not around back then like my girlfriend and her boys and i want to have and they're all excited to see us and you know some of us have children that were not around um Luke's two girls, uh, Cece was, Cece probably barely remembers some stuff, but Millie definitely doesn't. So his girls will be around and, uh, Eugene and Remus have, have kids that were never around too. So we're, we're just excited to, to play and share it with new people that were not around back then. And, you know, the scene too, like kids that got into this, got into hardcore in the last seven years that haven't got a chance to see us. It's, it's going to be cool. I'm very stoked about it. Looking back 
at the very beginning of you playing shows and then looking at you like you're playing your last show, would you say that Chicago as a hardcore scene changed better as in more people better because there's like a bigger connection to beyond just Chicago or are you waxing, do you wax nostalgically on the old days when you guys are all younger in your first bands? No, I think it's better now. I think we had some great eras and some great times, but I think it's better now. I really do. I think, um, it seems like there's more and more kids that are getting excited about it and it might be easier now than it has ever been to, to get involved in it. And that's ultimately a good thing. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to, and I, I, I want to just be a part of it and, you know, do shows when it makes sense and help other people younger than me, like kind of take some of the reins too, you know, cause I don't, I don't need to, I don't want to feel like I'm, you know, imposing my will on something that I shouldn't be involved in. I want to be involved in the stuff that makes sense and the stuff that maybe I'm a little bit detached from. I want to have other people that I can link up with stuff like that. That's why I have one of the reasons I have Taylor and John right with me, because there's some stuff that, that I want them to take the lead on too, you know, and other people too, who, whoever wants to be involved. I just want, I just want to do my part to kind of be a, uh, I don't know, steward. Is that the right word? Just like kind of make sure. Oh, it's absolute stewardship. Make sure, make sure there's good people involved in, in our community moving forward and like kind of give them the ball to run with it. Um, but at the same time, still keep a little piece of the ball in my pocket so I can pop up whenever I need to. <laughs> no, I feel like I, I, I can relate so heavily. I tell Bob all the time. I said, if I'm, if I was any other 40 year old idiot, I already would be moving on to something, but I'm a fucking dope. <laughs> it's a, and I still do shows. I mean, there's some, there's some bands that no matter what, all I have to say is see is the band name. And I'm like, yep. Just tell me what date, when, whatever you need. I got you, you know, and it'll always be like that. Even when I'm, you know, if I make it to 70 years old or whatever I make it to, like, I'll be like, Hey, this band, they're my boys and I got to take care of them. Or, you know, it's just the way it is. I'm going to run through some quick stuff and we'll get you out of here. I know it's uh, late for you. I know you got shit going on. It's even later for you. Thank you for doing all this. Nah, I'm fucking so psyched. I'm so fucking psyched. I'm trying to get better with, I talk to a lot of older friends and I talk to people that I look up to as careers are amazing. And I talk to people who have done amazing things. I feel like you follow all three of those categories. You know, we've known each other. I can't believe, I truly can't believe that we've known each other as long as we have now. It's fucking makes me feel old. I I mean, (laughs) I remember not, I mean, I remember not only coming to see you in Philly, I remember not only punishment coming out but i also remember other tours where it was dysphoria and you were just traveling with them yeah and that would happen a lot too and i remember the milwaukee metal did i shave did i shave all my hair off in your kitchen floor on the second day of our tour no there was there i don't think so maybe you did you did it out you did our first that's how crazy dysphoria was they're like and which is became the punishment uh, game plan. Whatever, just we did punishment, try to mock. 
So they were like, we're going <laughs> to drive 12 hours out to Chicago, play there. That's a good way to start. And I remember <laughs> yeah. it was a hot, there's still a picture. There's still a picture of all of us out front of your show in a, in a box truck that the St. Louis dudes had. <laughs> and it was like do- Jim Honey and the dog fight guys. Oh. And, uh, I was so mad about my hair. I decided to shave my head that night. I'm like, fuck this. I'm shaving my head. I'm not doing this whole summer. And uh, I remember whoever, whoever was ever Chicago boys is. I don't think I cleaned my hair up. because I was total fucking 19 year old dickhead. And, um, but I think about, I think about the things that you did and like, you're so like quiet, like, Oh yeah. Well, I was hanging out with a guy from braid and rise against, and obviously punishment and arm Angelus played together at some point in the heist. Yeah. Or in a show as we come through and, you know, P it's like you have touched so many people with your shows who have gone on to, or a part of other things and musically, and you've managed to stay humble and focus in your own lane. You are stewarding two people in a way that like I relate heavily to. I mean, I think a lot of these older promoters that came from our shit either gave up and never passed anything on. Or bitterly took their ball and walked away from it and well, got mad when someone else came into it. You that's know? what I was just gonna say. A lot of the, a, a lot of them just don't want anybody else to ever experience anything, and so they just kind of walk away from it. And that's that's not the right attitude to have. You're not. It doesn't do anybody any good. Not even that person. You know. So, when you came to that conclusion. And obviously, because you work in the in the field so far itself, that you're not like walking away. But when did you come to the conclusion that you were like looking to not only pass on but like mentor and steward people into the stuff that you've been doing for so long? I don't know. Pro- I mean, they pro- like Taylor and John probably had a big part of it too, like begging me to bring the rumble back. And the more they nudged me about it the more i started to think about okay well if i bring it back and get them involved in it then it's people that i love and know and trust that are carrying it on to the next generation or whatever you know um so you know i think i have to thank them for you know opening my eyes to any kind of opportunity to kind of kind of bring them along you know yeah if you had to pick the three bands don't in any category that were like high water marks or like holy fuck i can't believe i booked this show or this band what would they be <sighs> three bands off the top of my head don't have to be attached to the same shows as we you know like and it could be just more personal reasons and like this was a giant show and I made all this money. Just like three shows that stand out like, holy fuck, I can't believe I did that. Just just three bands that I'm most proud that I, I've i booked. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's got to be, one of them's got to be Hatebreed in that era, for sure. 100% Hatebreed in 97. Um, Bolt Thrower, it's got to be in there. Um, and then I'm going to go with Entombed. Those are the three. I could say a hundred other ones, but those are. Oh, you know what? Can I say a fourth Warzone? That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, Warzone's got to Warzone's got to be in there too. But 
uh, I was lucky enough to do Entombed when Alex was still in the band, and when you know, obviously when Petrov was still with us, and that was that was pretty amazing. But I could go on all night about that. But yeah, I can't forget about Entombed. I can't forget about the Warzone show, and I can't forget about those bolt thrower shows, which were some of the fucking most insane things I've ever been a part of. Have you ever thought of contacting the Heights to do another show? Yeah, you know, um, about five years ago, a friend of ours um, uh, sadly took his own life. Um, and he was a big, he was in a lot, he was in some bands from here. Um, and uh, he uh, loved nights. So we did like a benefit show for him. That was like, 2016 maybe 2015 2016 actually it might have been 2014 but that was the last time but that was the first time i had used the club and or the the room whatever in a few years um i haven't thought about anything since then people have asked me why don't you do a show at the heights at the heights and it's like you know what unfortunately the problem is i need a kid from out here that lives in this area that wants to do it because otherwise it's just, it's so much easier. Now there's so many clubs available in the city that have, you know, solid pro PAs and you can rent them out for a fraction of what it costs at nights. Because if you're just renting a, an open box room, you have to bring in a PA somebody to run the PA, everything else, it gets really costly. So as crazy as it sounds, doing a show at a VFW hall actually costs, you know, two or maybe even three times what doing a show at a real club would cost. So it's become kind of a bummer. But I wish I wish somebody would do it. I would help them do it for sure. Now, in thinking about your entire time doing shows and thinking about all the things that you learned what would you impart earlier on in a young promoter who's like, Hey, do you have any tips for me? I'm just starting out. Oh, tips for just starting out. Um, just, you have to make sure that you're comfortable with the unexpected and things to be off the wall and unexpected. That, that, that's the, that's the main thing. And, um, Always, uh, I think always, always think about your responses before you make them. Don't, don't respond, um, emotionally when it's a professional setting, cause that can get you in trouble. You say this as I get an email and I want to fucking flip out. <laughs> I've been doing it all day. I should never. I should have called you and said, "Dude, can you believe this?" You know what? Um, that's that's the way to do it. That's another. That's a great another great piece of advice. Find a friend to talk to before you respond to somebody when you're upset about something in your professional life. Find a friend to bounce it off of, and let that friend counsel you on the best way to respond, or at least that friend can be the 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 stopgap for the time that you need to chill out and respond in a way that's going to be better for your career. I'm so glad I poured concrete for a career so I could be a dickhead on emails. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, I absolutely love you, man. I and love I, you and too. I wanted to have you on. I wanted people to hear your story 
And I wanted people to know that long before there, this is hardcore, and long before Posse numbers and all these things, there was the heist. And it wasn't, it didn't have the giant rebel sponsors that some fest would have and 10,000 people, but it really was a crossroads where so many of us got together and so many different things. I mean, you know, there's so many different shows and so many different times to the point where even the shows we didn't play, we would drive out, you know, and like if our friends knew that we were driving out, our whole car became our van rather was like a clown car just so everyone could be out there for it. Cause it was always a blast and you know, pre-internet pre YouTube, a lot of that stuff got buried. And so I know that it's awesome that you can come back with the rumble and then you came back with rumble again, but I'm, I'm so fucking excited for all you to be able to do the killer. So as we tune out and all the stuff you're talking about with the show, we're gonna have links in the page talk about these killer shows and and then you know give us a salutation okay so we're gonna do two shows um august 6th and 7th they're gonna be in the parking lot of cobra lounge um which is a venue that we've played before but it's kind of it's a little small so we're gonna be in their parking lot where we can have about twice as many people um they're gonna go on sale friday i don't know when this is gonna air but it might be already on sale by that time um and uh yeah you know there's the we're we're co-headlining the shows with dead the fall um a band another band from chicago that we had some of our very best shows with um here in chicago so good friends of ours and kind of brings a different um vibe to the show which is again what we were talking about earlier i love to mix vibes so i did it again with these shows (laughs) um and you know we have year of the knife uh, we have Gridiron, we have Zabalba, we have MH Chaos, we have uh, Sunset, which is uh, Dave from Harvest, a band from Minneapolis that a lot of us here in the Midwest grew up on, his new band. So a lot of really cool stuff for those two shows. Well, we're going to link up everything. And I actually am going to fly out to the Saturday show. I can't make the Friday show. It's not possible. We'll, but We'll see you Saturday. Flights are purchased. Flights are purchased. Fuck yeah. Thank you for great. what you thank you for what you did for dysphoria, which led to punishment. My friends in Resurrected who were part of punishment later playing blacklisted. You had blacklisted, um, Shattered Realm. You know, you did so much for all of us, gave us some of our favorite road trip memories. And well, thank you too. I just appreciate because, thank you because I mean when I came when I came out with Luke and Tommy and all them at, to visit you um, that weekend, and we went to shows every weekend. We came out for a weekend. We went to shows Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, they were all second to none shows. And um, the beginning, of, the beginning of that weekend and the end of that weekend, thanks to you, I had a much different understanding of what it meant to go to a hardcore show on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, was like a 19, 19 year old kid, like, oh wow, you're not even safe at the merch tables. These guys don't give a fuck. It was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like someone said that Luke came back from Philadelphia and changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 pretty much what it was. 
you guys loved Cat Burglar, and that was the initial link. And then we all yeah. came out there, and then we came back. It was like, oh, my God, it's fucking crazy out there, you know? But I remember that, that place that was out, out in the boonies, uh, CeCe's, was it called? CeCe's? Yeah, CeCe's. Okay, I, went, I remember you took us to a second-to-none show at CeCe's, and uh, I had never seen anything like that. And I remember... Um, I think indecision was on the bill and they walked in and they were like, yes, yeah, we'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't play because of the violence. <laughs> yeah, They were just like, uh, Oh, they, and, and I was just like, I mean, I still love that fucking, that second to none shit is, is so in its class on its own, but Holy shit. I, that, I had never seen anything like that. It was awesome. No, no there was like, there's bands that sonically sound one way, but without the understanding of what a show was. And second to none, who played, it's it's just like a like that band Horror Show. Horror Show played very few shows in the terms of like what a band's career is. Yeah. Like I think right now Horror Show maybe have played three dozen shows ever. And Shattered, I mean, a Punishment Shattered Realm did that so quickly. And in. In contrast, like a band like Second to None, they were around for a couple years, but potentially maybe it played 45 shows ever, maybe 50. And I was at almost 10% of their shows then. That's awesome. (laughs) It's like they really, you know, they played either the same kind of like small Jersey shows or absolutely chaotic shows. And I remember you guys just being like, this is absolutely chaotic. I love it. Yeah. And that was like a a huge bonding point, you know, it's fucking great. And I love that you that stayed with you, man. That's awesome. Absolutely stayed with me. Absolutely. And another, I'll tell you one more thing that stayed with me. Um, there was one night that weekend, like you had kind of a little get together at your, at your Ma's place. And I don't know which one of your crazy friends it was, but I was standing out with a couple of your buddies. And one of them said he has to take a shit. And instead of going inside, he just shit his pants, took out a knife, cut his underwear off, and threw it in the bushes. Oh, Big Mark. <laughs> that's the, Mark. That's the, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, Big Mark. Yeah, Big <laughs> Big Mark will absolutely take a shit and just throw it in the bushes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what the fuck just happened? This dude's like, I gotta take a shit. The next time I, the next thing I see, he has a knife out and he's cutting his underwear off. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> he's fucking awesome. Good, good memories, oh, man. Good memories. Yeah, fucking, uh, just a chaotic fucking weekend, and it built, you know, friendships for over twenty years, man. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show. I can't wait thank to you see you in August. Me. No, thank you, and uh, we'll have every all the links to all this up on the up on the show page. Shane, you're the man. I can't wait for the killer, and thank you. Love you, man. Thanks, Joe. We'll see you soon. Love you, man. All right, bye. Peace. There you have it. Again, I had a great conversation with him. In hindsight, we probably could have did an entire episode of just crazy shit that happened at shows, shows we were at, shows with our friends, hanging out. Shane has led from the front with Hardcore in Chicago and managed to transcend into the real big big boy world of running a calendar, booking metal bands, And just one of my first friends 
from out of town as a promoter who I watch grow. And I love that he's back on stage with the killer. I love that he has some um, new life invigorated with younger people that he's mentoring. And I love that the Rumble's back. Shattered Realm, we played it a couple years back. It was fantastic. And like I said, Chicago friends, you will see me Saturday, August 7th. So be fucking ready. Remember, we got shows. Remember, you have friends. Remember that none of this is guaranteed and to take a little bit of time out of the immediate and just love and respect the people that matter and spend a little bit more time with them because you never know if it's going to be the last time you're around them. And sorry to the people, all four or five of you who are Patreon people, but I don't have the time right now and it's not worth it for me to say this every episode and then get jammed up in real life and not provide. So that's my apologies. So on to the next one. Can't wait for next week. See y'all later.